Longest Day is a podcast from a female-founded destination practice that believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. We are an organization unafraid of crisis, but have never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to the crisis in the first place, there's always something we can learn. I'm Leah, the founder and CEO of Broadstairs Consulting, a problem-solving consultancy offering crisis and governance advisory services to help leaders and organizations thrive and flourish. We operate in the gap between legal and public relations, at the coalface of difficult situations, believing that most crises are avoidable and the impact of inevitable ones usually can be mitigated. Our guests have overcome a litany of crises. Many of our guests have worked with us in some capacity in the past. All of them have stories worth hearing, We trust them to make this worth your while. We hope it helps you trust us. Today, we welcome Professor Rahib Ali, OBE, MD, MA, MPH, MSc, FRCP UK on FFPH, Chief Investigator, Chief Medical Officer and Interim CEO at Our Future Health. Our Future Health is the UK's largest ever health research programme, bringing people together to develop new ways to prevent, detect and treat diseases. Growing up as a child in receipt of free school meals, Rahib thought the chances of going to both Cambridge University and becoming a doctor were almost zero. However, he studied medicine at Cambridge, where he would later work as an academic, and became a consultant in acute medicine at Oxford University Hospitals. He is a clinical epidemiologist and works at the University of Cambridge's MRC Epidemiology Unit and is an honorary consultant for the Office for Health Disparities and Improvement. He volunteered on the NHS frontline during the COVID pandemic on four occasions. Rahib, welcome to The Longest Day. Thanks, Leah. I'm very happy to be here. I wonder if you might like to tell our listeners about your longest day and how it came about. Sure. So during kind of... March 2020, um, when it became clear that COVID was going to be a major problem in the UK, I needed to make a decision. So I'd been working in academia for quite a few years, um, doing medical research in in various things, both in the UK and abroad. And I also had the opportunity at that point to start working on a project off off each health, which uh, I'm sure we'll come back to. But uh, it became clear in March 2020 that that COVID was going to be a major problem. We were seeing what's happening in Italy, um, hospitals being overwhelmed, and also the impact on the health service um, and on doctors and nurses. So by background, I'm a consultant in acute medicine. So I'd worked as a kind of frontline doctor for many years, from 2000 until 2009. And then when I qualified as a consultant, I started doing mainly research but I hadn't done any clinical work for a couple of years because I'd been very busy with my research between 2018 and uh, 2020. And then when the call came saying we need volunteers, doctors to come back, I was really in two minds as to whether to to volunteer. Um, what we'd also heard by that time was that quite a few doctors had died um, in China, in Italy, and also some early reports from the UK. And in the UK, at least, they tended to be doctors from particularly South Asian uh, and ethnic minority uh, backgrounds. Uh, My father also uh, had a lung condition, um, quite a severe lung condition, lung fibrosis. And I knew that if I volunteered to go back, it would probably mean not seeing him for quite a long time. And of course, I was worried about the impact on my 
immediate family as well, my wife, three children, and potentially not being able to see them for some time as well. So I spent quite a lot of time on that day. I don't know exactly what day. It was a day in March um, 2020, trying to make the call, uh, the decision whether to volunteer um, to go back um, or not. And I discussed it with my wife. Um, I wouldn't say she was overly keen on the idea. Um, she was also worried about you know what could happen to me and, and the family. Uh, I discussed it with my parents. Uh, and again, they understood that what the implications would be. But based on all of that, I did decide to, to volunteer. So I volunteered both at the hospital that I'd worked in previously, which was in Oxford, and the John Radcliffe Hospital, and also at the new Nightingale Hospitals that were being um, set up. So this was yeah towards the end of March uh, 2020. So that was you know a long day in terms of making a decision um, as to whether to 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 go back to frontline duties or not. And then over the next couple of weeks, um, because I hadn't been in in clinical practice for a couple of years, there was a kind of crash course and just making sure I was back up to speed on various things, including the computer systems at the hospital, um, but also to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, the various, it's, it's not that, you know, I've been working as a doctor for nearly 20 years, so it's not that I'd forgotten. <laughs> um, but there are various things which you just need to get up to speed on, um, which I spent the next couple of weeks um, doing. And then it was kind of beginning of April that uh, my first day back on the ward um, and again, that was a long day because it was, as you'd expect, um, extremely busy. We were dealing with a new disease, but also what maybe I hadn't quite appreciated was that we wouldn't have access to the full kind of PPE um, that some of the other countries had. So if you looked at the pictures, for example, on, in China or Italy, um, doctors on the front line tended to have the full kind of hoods and gowns and a type of mask which is a much better protection against COVID whereas for us working in accident emergency at A&E we had the basic surgical mask gloves and a, and a plastic apron um, so that came as a bit of a surprise and particularly as we were the doctors who were dealing at, and not just doctors I mean there's doctors nurses healthcare assistants uh, caterers etc all of those who are dealing with patients in A&E we had much lower levels of PPE than for example doctors working in intensive care or in the respiratory ward uh, even though we were seeing COVID patients first. Um, so that, you know, was stressful because I realised that I was much more likely to to get infected because of that. Um, but uh, all of those days, you know, we're talking about a longest day, but that first month, April 2020, was a really strange and difficult and stressful and, and surreal time, surreal time in many ways. Um, you know, the roads, of course, were deserted. Everything was deserted, but I was still going into the hospital and... Dealing with things I hadn't dealt with before, not just a new disease, but the fact that there were no relatives, um, that patients very sadly were suffering on their own and dying on their own without any of the family members. And, and at that stage, you didn't even have everything set up for video consultations. You know, this was really at the beginning. So there were many long days during that month, um, even lots of new things for me, the kind of whole disinfecting myself, going home from the hospital getting changed um, twice, you know, getting home. I, I remember discussing with my wife whether I should stay in a hotel you know, near the hospital and uh, she very graciously said, no, that wasn't necessary because we have a spare room downstairs. She said, you can sleep in the spare room and, uh, you know, you've got your own bathroom there as well. And uh, it was set up for my, my parents actually, but uh, of course they couldn't visit during the pandemic anyway. Um, so I took, I took on that room and, you know, I was able to at least interact with the family um, to an extent during that that month. Uh, but that was certainly the longest month 
if my life in many ways and of my career. Every day was you're worried whether you get infected. There were times during the month when I'd have certain symptoms and I thought, oh my God, you know, I've got COVID now and we haven't got, at that time there were no treatments available. Of course, this was much, much longer, much, much before we had a vaccine. Um, but fortunately, that through that I got through that month uh, in good health. Um, I didn't get infected and uh, I'm here to, to tell the tale. What was it that kept you going during those long days where there was, as you say, no treatment on the horizon? Every day you were having to deliver bad news and deal with situations and circumstances no one would want to face repeatedly, far less at all. So what was it that kept you going? I think it was the same motivation that persuaded me to join in the first place. Uh, so going back a long way, you know, the, the chances of me becoming a doctor in the first place were quite slim. Uh, I had relatively difficult kind of uh, financial circumstances as a child. And fortunately, you know, because of a scholarship that I received, I was able to go to university uh, or to go to a better school and then to go to university to become a doctor. Even though, as you said at the beginning, the chances were pretty much zero. But I always recognized that it was very much a privilege to become a doctor in the first place. And I felt, you know, I've spent decades literally training to get to this place. It would be a waste of that uh, not to be able to contribute during COVID. And I also felt that I couldn't kind of sit by while my colleagues were facing this. You know, these are people that I'd worked with, um, for, again, for a long time. And the NHS in general, I think, is an amazing institution that provides care to everybody regardless of the ability to pay and based on need and I wanted to contribute to that. It, was, it felt a bit like a war situation although fortunately I've not been in a war but you know from what we read that people come together in that situation uh, so we're helping each other out and helping the country um, out at that time. So that was the same motivation that drove me every single day although as you say it was without doubt you know the most stressful professional um, part of or part of my life professionally. And presumably Everyone in the hospital had singular aims of preserving life. But what were the most helpful character traits of the people in your team and the people who were working with you? So it was very much that spirit of working together, looking out for each other, helping each other, both in terms of our work, but also emotionally and, and support-wise. Um, for me, as a consultant, I was leading a team of junior doctors mainly. We also had doctors coming from different specialities who hadn't worked in this area before. Um, but there was a great spirit of uh, camaraderie at that time, um, which unfortunately has not always been there before or since. Um, but I think because of this kind of emergency situation, and again, this kind of wartime footing type thing, we all felt we needed to, to, to do our best in difficult circumstances. And that motivation was probably the key. Everyone had similar motivation. And I wasn't the only volunteer. Uh, I mean, not in Oxford, where I work a lot, there are quite a lot of academics who had come back to, to help as best as they could. And that was really encouraging. And again, although I mentioned the issue with PPE, no one really complained about it. I mean, we all knew there were shortages. Um, and we did, you know, we, we dealt with that. And we said, this is the best that can be provided. Um, although there was a risk um, to us. So, but yeah, it was people being having the right motivation, being patient in face of difficulty. And also, I have to say, a good sense of humor was important <laughs> at that time. And uh, that did help, you know, to get through some difficult and uh, dark days. Are you feeling stuck? Has conflict got you down? Have you considered mediation? Mediation is a confidential and flexible way to resolve conflicts. 86% of all mediations end in a solution, saving time, 
money, and stress for all involved. Thanet Mediation Center, a Broadstairs consulting initiative, offers mediation services to individuals and organizations in Thanet, Kent, and further afield. For more information or advice, email us at info at broadstairsconsulting.com. We are here to help you move forwards. Crises over long careers can come in many forms, and presumably this was the most challenging time of your career to date. Is there anything up until that point that prepared you to be able to lead well in the pandemic? So again, going back to kind of childhood experiences, for various reasons, I mean, my father, although he was an accountant by training, he developed glaucoma at a very young age. Um, and so by the age of 40, he couldn't really work. And I was only five at that point. And so we fell into quite difficult financial circumstances. And although my mum started to work, um, she was a kind of minimum wage um, type employment, again, with the NHS. Um, so having been through a difficult time and becoming independent, I would say, although, of course, I'm very grateful, you know, my parents were there, I had a, a roof over my head, etc. But I learned to be independent quite early on, both in terms of my academic and financially. Um, so taking odd jobs uh, from the age of 11, actually. Um, and then throughout my school and university career, taking on those uh, additional jobs to, to get through university without getting into debt. Um, so that early experience, I think, was very helpful. Um, and then through both my research career and as a consultant, you know, COVID was difficult, but it wasn't the, f- there have been many difficult days as a consultant at acute medicine that I faced as well. Um, so there have been busier days, for example. Um, and again, where, or where there have been lots of very sick patients, um, or patients that have died unexpectedly or dealing with, uh, when I worked in A&E, for example, and dealing with children dying, um, in fact, my own niece also died, uh, when she was aged four. So all of those kind of experiences have certainly helped prepare me for that, uh, what happened um, during COVID. And with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything as you look back that you wish you could have done differently? There's always room for improvement in, in what we do. Uh, I think in relation to COVID, I was, I, I, I'm was i confident that I made the right decision uh, to go back. Um, it did have an impact on my research work. Um, I mean, I talked about RFHL, I would have joined RFHL earlier. Uh, also, the work I was doing overseas um, was put back somewhat, but uh, I've, I always felt it was the right decision. Uh, I did get ill during the second wave, um, so that was just before the, the vaccine uh, came out. Uh, I did get COVID and fortunately not bad enough to go into hospital, but I was quite unwell for a couple of weeks. Um, so at that point, maybe I felt, maybe <laughs> is this the right thing to do? But no, in all seriousness, I, I knew that was a risk. Um, and so you know, I, I do feel I made the, the right decision. Uh, of course, as a clinician, we always felt, or we should always feel, how we can do better in terms of treatment of our patients. Uh, fortunately, for me personally, none of the patients that I saw um, died personally. You know, from COVID, they they all got better, which was was great. But you know, as a clinician, this is something we should also be always be very aware of that uh, that uh, to to make sure that we optimize our management and treatment of all our patients. Now, I obviously know what Our Future Health is, but why don't you tell our listeners? Sure. So Our Future Health is a new research project um, started about two years ago. It's going to be the UK's largest health research project. We're aiming to recruit 5 million volunteers. 
And it's a new concept as well in, in research, um, because what we are trying to demonstrate through this research project is how we can move to a different model of healthcare. So as I said, I'm a I'm a doctor who works in A&E treating patients with things like heart attacks, strokes, infections, diabetic emergencies, cancers that have spread, etc. But we know that for most of these diseases, particularly heart disease, many cancers, uh, many other diseases, they develop over decades, and we know what causes them in, in many instances. So what we're trying to move towards is a early detection, early intervention, prevention model of healthcare rather than treatment of late-stage disease. And that's why our food shelter was set up, to show how we can do that better. Although everyone knows you know, prevention is better than cure, in practice, to deliver that across a healthcare system is not straightforward. And that's why actually the NHS, although it was created with that in in mind, I mean, it's interesting when you look at what Beverage and Bevan, when they set the NHS up, they thought it would actually reduce demand because people would be healthier. Um, and that would be the ideal. But in practice, that hasn't been the case. You know, demand has increased for lots of other reasons as well. But it's also because we haven't been successful in preventing disease or detecting disease early. So that's why RFG Health is being set up with our primary objective. It's also being set up as a resource for all researchers, particularly in the UK, but also globally. Um, so within the NHS, within academia, within the life sciences industry, to develop new treatments, new diagnostic tests as to how we can detect disease earlier, new treatments that we can use earlier in the course of a disease. Um, and it's also relatively unusual in that we are trying to recruit a uh, population that's representative of the UK as it is now. So that means having much better representation of ethnic minorities um, who have been underrepresented in this type of research before, but also people from all deprived backgrounds. I mean, we have huge health inequalities in the UK and a study like our future health can help to understand some of the drivers of that inequality and how that can be addressed other than what we know already, which is mainly what we call social determinants of health, but things that can be um, looked at at the individual level as well. So that's really the idea behind our, behind our future health. And in terms of data samples and participants, within the ethnic minority community, are there specific groups that you are hoping to attract in droves, shall we say, to your study? So it's important for any type of medical research to have populations or to have a sample, if you like, that's representative of the population that you... So if you're in a clinical trial, for example, and we saw this during the pandemic as well with vaccines. And if we want to be able to demonstrate that vaccines work across all ethnic groups, across all populations globally, it's important that they're included in clinical trials. Uh, the same applies for diagnostic research or prevention research um, as well. So just to maybe go back a step, I mean, what our future health involves from the participant point of view is firstly to read about the study and to read the past information sheet and then you can send online you can anyone can go to our website ourfuturehealth.org.uk to sign up online they'll fill in a questionnaire which asks about habits lifestyle past medical history medications etc and then you visit a clinic to give a sample of blood have some physical measurements taken blood pressure cholesterol height weight uh, etc and the blood sample is important so that we can look at the genetic susceptibility to disease so if you are at higher risk of disease based on your genes and also other biomarkers, what things that we can measure in the blood, which can give an indication of both current and future risk of, uh, of disease. So in that type of research, there's a very famous study called UK Biobank, which was the first that I worked on actually about uh, nearly 15 years ago, and which was very successful. It recruited half a million people um, and was the first large study to be able to look at the relative importance of genes and environment or lifestyle in causation of disease. So our future health in some ways is a kind of successor study to that um, because it, it allows us to feedback 
individual information or feedback to individuals, their risk of disease, um, as well as to take part in these additional studies I described. But what hasn't happened in the past, and hasn't been possible in the past, is to get people from ethnic minorities um, in this type of research, not just in the UK, actually, even globally. It's a big underrepresentation of people from South Asia, from Africa, uh, or South Asian African backgrounds um, in this type of research. And I've spent much, much of my career trying to uh, address that by working in these types of populations, both in the UK and, and globally, to address that, uh, that unmet need. So in the UK context specifically, um, I mean, the, the largest ethnic groups here are Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Black African, Black Caribbean, Chinese, and also now Eastern European. Uh, so we want people from all of these backgrounds to, to take part. And there are some diseases that are more common in these ethnic groups, and there are some diseases which are less common. And by them taking part, not only will they have the opportunity to benefit themselves, um, which is, of course, important, but also to understand more about these diseases in people of their ethnic background, but also for the whole population. You know, what we discover will be very helpful. So in my own area has mainly been in cancer, for example, in the research that I've done. And we saw that for some cancers, like prostate cancer, it's well known, has a higher risk in men of uh, Black Caribbean, Black African uh, origin. And we don't really know why. And we know there's a genetic component to it. Um, but we haven't pinpointed uh, that accurately as to, to what that is. And there will be other factors as well, um, but it just hasn't been studied in enough detail yet. South Asians, in contrast, for example, have a much lower risk of bowel cancer, or colorectal cancer. Again, we don't really know why. Um, so for these two, as examples, you know, we could find out why that's the case, and then we could use that information to help everybody. Um, so yeah, so that's the, why it's important that people from ethnic minorities take part. And how can people spread the word? So first, as I said, you could go to our website to find out more yourselves, ourfuturehealth.org.uk. Um, anyone can join anywhere in the UK, as long as you're resident in the UK um, and registered with the, with the NHS. Um, you're very welcome to join. And we would encourage everybody, but particularly those from the backgrounds I've described, to encourage friends and family um, to, to take part as well. Uh, as I said, there is a benefit for you personally because you can find out about your own risk of disease in the future. And there's a benefit for your community, um, family, community, and, and the whole nation, and the whole world, actually, because this is such a large study um, of 5 million people. So it will be the largest study in the world of its type, and people globally will be able to benefit, including, uh, for example, people in South Asia and Africa, because they would have they can use the information we learned from this study for, the, for those countries as well. That's amazing. I have one more question for you. Sure. If you had to live your longest day or weeks again, what food would you choose to fuel them? <laughs> That's an unexpected question. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I have to say I am, uh, as a clinical epidemiologist, I obviously have to be careful about the advice I give to others as to what they should eat. Um, and I try to follow it myself as well. Uh, so in general, uh, I do try to follow a healthy diet, and that includes, you know, high uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts, etc. Um, but I am guilty, if you like, of a uh, partialness to chocolate. <laughs> so uh, my ideal combination is uh, kind of fruit, nut, and chocolate bar. So that's uh, that's what I would mainly use to to get through those longest days and weeks. I can vouch for the things that I can see on his desk. This is absolutely <laughs> true. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and telling us a bit more about our future health. And it's been a great joy to have you on The Longest Day. Thank you very much, Leah. You've been listening to a Broadstairs Consulting Limited podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. 
Tune in soon to hear the next installment of The Longest Day. Copyright 2023. Production copyright. Broadstairs Consulting Limited. All rights reserved. <laughs>